You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Thank you, Pastor Derek. After three weeks, surprised you had to read that off the script. You should have had it memorized by now. Um, we, we had no idea we would be in this text this long. Uh, Pastor Dave, uh, or Dave, where's Dave? Dave Hoffman, is he in the room yet? Um, and thank you so much for your kind words and the band for leading us. Um, Axis family, uh, Derek and Don are phenomenal men and they have wonderful lives. Um, we are honored to have them. I'm honored to have them alongside of me as we serve the body here. Um, it is a fantastic blessing and joy to have them as my pastors. And there's no two other men that I would want serving with me. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal men. Trenton, let's get some lights up in the house so I can see who we're dealing with. Never mind, t- put it back down. Never mind, no, I'm just kidding, y'all. <clears throat> um, I, uh, I'm not feeling well. Uh, that's why I wasn't in the room in the first service. I had to go blow my nose. I got some sort of allergy thing happening and uh, I'm heavily medicated and I don't have much sleep, so it could get sideways quick. Um, we'll, we'll have fun today though, that's, that's for sure. Um, but I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and I'm really glad that you fought through Titan's traffic to get here this morning. Um, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark if you haven't done so already. And for those who are new or perhaps haven't taken us up on this offer, uh, we have Mark journals for you for free. Uh, Jordan's got some back there for you. Um, if you want one, you can just raise your hand. He'll get you one. It's the gospel of Mark with the journal pages, um, every other page of scripture. So they're there for you. Um, let's give those out to... Any and all who want them. Um, So, all right, so we're gonna hit context as we get going. Again, this is week three in this particular chunk of scripture. Mark needs one over here. That's pretty cool. We're in the gospel of Mark. It's not yours though, but you can have a copy of it. Okay, Uh, that's my neighbor. All right, so um, we're gonna gonna, uh, hit context because understanding context helps us um, stay safe as we interpret or navigate any portion of scripture. It helps us gain a more accurate understanding of scripture, uh, particularly as we apply it to our lives today. And so recently here, as we enter into chapter 10, we know that the disciples tried stopping a man from casting out demons in the name of Jesus. He seemed to be doing a good thing, but the disciples tried to shut him down um, for a number of reasons perhaps, but Jesus told them, "Don't, don't stop the man. And then 940, Mark 940 said, for the one who is not against us, is actually for us. And then in 942, just a verse later, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he would be thrown into the sea. One of these little ones, little ones, children, little ones, children. You hear this all throughout the end of chapter nine, all the way through chapter 10. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But here we understand this little ones refers not just to those who are child or children that was around Jesus during this time, but those who were childlike, those who were young, um, those who were um, underdeveloped spiritually, perhaps young in their faith. And then Jesus moves on from that moment to, to putting his attention on the disciples. He was pushing the disciples to be very desperate in their pursuit to run away from sin and pursue with great enthusiasm, faithfulness, running away from sin and towards faithfulness. And he used um, hyperbole, like cut off your hand if it keeps you from following Jesus closely. Cut off your foot, pluck out your eye, do radical things, whatever it takes, if it hinders you from pursuing God the way that 
the scriptures tells us to pursue God. And then we had the passage there early in chapter 10, Pastor Derek preached a wonderful sermon on an often touchy subject of divorce. And then three weeks ago, we first looked at this passage of scripture that we're working at today, where we first considered the humble childlike way that, that we're to come to Jesus in contrast to this young man in the text who was very proud and self-righteous, right? All right, so with this, let's look at chapter 10 and verse 13. We're gonna go quickly through this first portion in order to hit the latter part of our text, which is new for us, okay? So they were bringing the children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them, that he might hold them. And the disciples warned them, rebuked them to stay away from Jesus. But when Jesus, in verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hold them back. Don't hinder them from coming to me for to such belongs the kingdom of God. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not welcome or receive or is open to the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is what the son of God says. He says, there's one way of entering the kingdom of God and that is like a child. In fact, if you don't enter the kingdom like a child, you shall not enter it. And there's no exception. We enter as children or we don't enter. And he took them in his arms, these little children, and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So Jesus does this, has this really special moment with these children. And then he moves on towards Jerusalem, which is where we're gonna spend the rest of our time in the book of Mark, is his journey towards Jerusalem leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. But on the way to Jerusalem, he gets interrupted in verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey to Jerusalem, a man runs up to Jesus, kneels before him and asks him, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to gain eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In fact, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and to honor your father and mother. In other words, to inherit eternal life, what must you do? Jesus says, be perfect. Be perfectly righteous. Do right all the time, constantly, always, without exception, without one exception, without any error whatsoever, without any impurity in your motives. Be perfect. Now you and I, if we have any, any sense about us at all, we know that we can't do this. We haven't done this. We'll never be able to do this. But this fellow in the text, very self-righteous, he feels like he's crushed it. Look what he says. He says, he leaves out in verse 20, he leaves out good teacher because he got rebuked for that. So he's like, all right, we'll just, we'll settle it. Teacher. All right. He said to him, teacher, all these I've observed and kept perfectly from my youth ever since I can remember my whole life. Even since I was a youth, I've kept these things. I've obeyed these things. Now, as we considered this man a couple weeks ago, we took note that he does something that you and I so often do today. It's not that he outright lied. It's over time, knowing that he could not uphold the law perfectly, he modified the law of God. He watered it down in such a way that he finally landed upon a version of the law, his own version of God's law, that he could uphold perfectly. He knew that he couldn't live perfectly righteous all the time. So in his mind, in order to 
have a good conscience about him. He watered it down so that he could obey it perfectly. And we do this all the time. We reduce or change or put words in God's mouth that he did not say in order for us to not have to change, in order for us to still go about life our own way. For instance, there's many who just feel like it's totally okay to sleep around, have sex, live together and all this before marriage. And it's like, well, because it's, it's expensive in Nashville, right? It's like, God knows like how expensive, we're trying, like we're going to church, we're still trying to figure this thing out, but we're, we're gonna do our own thing in our own way. Because God knows how expensive it is. God, we're already engaged. I mean, that's practically like married. Like in the eyes of God, we're married, right? So we re- what we're doing is we're doing with this mandate. We reduce what God says to accommodate our own sins so that we don't have to obey in God's way, but we tweak it in a way where we obey, but it's in our way. Does that make sense? And we do this in so many, so many other ways. We dilute the word of God to, to a version that's no longer the word of God, but it's a version that we can obey and feel good about ourselves where we don't have to change because we know that we can't live up to the righteous requirement of God's law and we can't handle the guilt of failing that law. So we either repent and turn to God in humility or we change what he says so we don't have to repent and turn to God in humility. We can keep our pride about ourselves and go about life our own way and somehow sleep at night as we reduce what God expects and change what God requires. Well, this religious young man, maybe he knew the, the law and maybe he, he upheld it outwardly in front of people, but his heart was not right with God. And you and I, man, we can see the outside of all of us. We can see how we behave, right? And we can discern at times certain things about what goes on the inside. But God knows us perfectly and thoroughly, top to bottom, inside and out, which should cause us much fear. That's terrifying to be fully known like this. And so Jesus knows this man. He fully knows this man. And he addresses him in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, he squares him up. And again, this is, this is just my personal estimation. This is the most self-righteous person in the New Testament because he is standing in front of Jesus, looking Jesus dead in the eyes without a quiver whatsoever in his voice, saying, I've upheld the law perfectly since I, ever since I can remember. Fully self-righteous. Jesus, looking at him, doesn't rebuke him, shame him, or judge him. It says here, according to Mark, inspired by the Spirit, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you still need one thing. You still lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have. And don't just sit on it. In fact, give it away. Don't just give it away to people that you get attention for doing so, like a charity. I want you to give it away to the poor. You take all that you have, go sell it and give it away to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then now that that's out of the way, now you can come follow me. Let's go. Disheartened by the saying, he went out away very sad, sorrowful because he was loaded. He had great 
possessions. And so we understand that his, his refusal to sell out all things and follow, it shows that he's interested in Jesus, but not at the same level as his love and interest is for wealth and status, comfort and riches. And this is dangerous. This is dangerous for us. Without grace, this is how we would all respond to Jesus. Thankfully though, out of love and grace, the spirit pulls us in. He causes us to lean towards Jesus rather than to push back away from Jesus. And this is grace. And I encourage you to ask for this grace. It could look something like this. Father, would you be so gracious to me? Would you show me grace in such a way that when I do experience your word, that you pull me in to this and conform me to you in your way and not have me push away out of self-righteousness, put words in your mouth and live however I wanna live. Pull me into you. Don't let me push away from you. This man teaches us that we can't follow Jesus as our treasure while we're also pursuing the treasure of our own life, our own way, our own career goals and so forth. Remember what Jesus taught in Mark 8, 34, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We want to follow, but we believe we can do it without denying ourselves, without doing it God's way, on God's terms. And that's just not Christianity. One thing you lack, give these things up, give them away, trust them to the Lord and follow him. Sell everything, sell all and follow Jesus and you get everything. But if you try to get everything and follow yourself, you lose it all. And then last Sunday, you might remember we closed our sermon, closed our sermon time together by considering what's that one thing, the thing that's keeping you from following Jesus more closely the one main thing that that you simply can't let go of, can't, like a child, trust him with. I mean, consider what that is even now. What is it that you've made accommodations for? You know it's wrong. It's sitting in your lap, it's with you all the time, and somehow you've reasoned about yourself that it's okay. But down deep, you know it's not. Down deep, you know it's still a hindrance to you following Jesus in faithful obedience. I mean, this man, he he pursued the law perfectly and yet he still knew it wasn't sufficient. That's why he came up to Jesus to begin with. He was perfect in his own eyes, but he still knew it wasn't enough for eternal life. He knew something was lacking. Do you know what's lacking? What is it? Is it something that you're holding out on, holding out for, holding in your lap that you're unwilling to let go of and to trust Jesus with? Continuing to verse 23, and Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, only with great difficulty will those who have wealth enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth, who have money, property, an abundance of possessions, a bunch of stuff to enter the kingdom of God. This man walks away proving just how difficult it is to pursue Jesus and wealth at the same time. But one thing I'm thankful for is this religious young fellow, he clearly heard Jesus. He understood Jesus. That's why he walked away disheartened because he heard exactly what Jesus was saying. He didn't do what so many others have done. That is to hear Jesus and think they can still go do what they want and be happy, do their own thing in their own way. We often hear Jesus and we try to fit him in our plans rather than submit our plans to him and follow him no matter what and no matter where. How difficult it is for those who find their worth 
and their value and their meaning and their identity in the things of this world, how difficult it is for them to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it is for those who insist on doing life their way. How difficult it is for them to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, we're gonna only enter the kingdom with empty hands, with bent knees in prayer and humble open hearts. The door into the kingdom is a very low door and you have to crawl to get in. There's no swagger. There's no height. It's the humble, low, those who are willing to crawl. The kingdom is for such a person. We'll only enter the kingdom of God doing God's thing in God's way. There's no exceptions. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them, children, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, children is mentioned several times in this portion of scripture, as I mentioned already. It's as if Jesus is stating their identity to them, reminding them of, of how it is that they're to come to him. You're a child, reminding them to come to him, not on the basis of their performance, not on the basis of their wealth, their status, their possessions, not on the basis of their religious perf perfection, if you will. In addressing them as children, he's having them recall something that he just taught. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Children, remember back in nine, verse 35, Mark nine thirty-five. he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms and said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not only me, but him who sent me, God Almighty. And then in Mark chapter 10, let the children come to me. In verse 14, do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them and laid his hands on them. In the midst of this confusion about the wealthy and the distracted having such difficulty making it into the kingdom of God, Jesus calls them children. And in doing so, he's reminding them what he's just mentioned about the requirement to come to him as a child. You see, the wealthy, they're grown up. They're not kids. They're independent. They're self-made, they're proud, and they have needs, but they address their needs themselves with their money, with their resources. They have no needs outside of themselves, and they can take care of it with what they have. But the child is very different. A child is young and very dependent, humble and needy. And the children around Jesus, by the way, in this setting, many believe were infants, younger than toddlers. They're humble, they're needy. They have needs, right? And as soon as they think about a need, they cry out. It's what children do. They're hungry, they cry. They went poo-poo, they cry. They want a toy, they cry. They cry instantly, but as we get old, we feel the need, but our pride will not let us cry out. We bite our lip, we dig deep in our pocket, and we fake it because we can't be as real as a child. 
Jesus says, unless you humble yourself and realize your need and cry out like a kid, you're never gonna enter the kingdom. You're not interested. You're not interested in the kingdom. You're interested in yourself and your kingdom. And you can't follow your kingdom and God's kingdom at the same time. They're in different directions. This is why he left, sad. He pursued his own kingdom. He was not interested in the kingdom of God. Not at the same level as his kingdom of comfort. These little children, they have little to nothing. They have no bank account. They don't know how to operate a remote control, let alone life. They have to ask for help. And Jesus tells the disciples to be like the humble, trusting children who just give themselves to God. He tells them to be like little children and look to God for help. What do children do? They look to their parents for help, for guidance, for protection, to keep them safe, for resources, for mercy. When a kid falls, one of the first things they're doing when they're crying is they look for mama or daddy. When the wealthy falls, they look for their money. Jesus builds on the difficulty that the wealthy will have. And by wealthy, it's bigger than money. And I don't need to tell you that we're some of the richest people on the planet that are in this room, all of us, all of us. Even if you live on a set income from the government, you're loaded compared to the rest of the world, okay? It's not to make you feel guilty. It's just to let you know he's talking about us. But it's also wealth is used as a picture of anything, anything that we place our hope in. For this man, it was his riches. But we all place our hope in so many things. We set our heart on so many things. We're all at risk of doing this. So don't just consider the wealthy and dismiss yourself because, you know, you're a college student without a job. Bethany. <clears throat> just kidding, I love you. She has a job, I know she has a job, just not a real one, okay. <clears throat> just kidding, I love you. I'll give you some money later for that, I'm sorry. All right. <clears throat> so he builds on this, it's the medication, I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Then I won't, if it's okay, then I won't give you money. All right, so Jesus builds on this difficulty that the wealthy are gonna have on entering into the kingdom. Look in verse 25. He says, it's easier, it's easier for a camel. And this was a popular cliche back then for a camel, often interchanged with an elephant, for it's easier for an elephant or a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's easier than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God, which is why in verse 26, the disciples are shocked and they ask the question, well, if that's true, if it's easier for that to happen than for someone to, with wealth to come into the kingdom of God, then who can be saved? Who? How can this happen? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. So what you're feeling is right. It's impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now here's clear proof that it is extremely difficult for people whose hearts are set on riches or anything else other than Christ to enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, it's about as easy for a camel to literally go through the eye of a needle. In other words, it's impossible for any person to save themselves, any person. Although we can't overcome our own sinful hearts by ourselves, the gospel tells us that God can, God does, and God will intervene and step in in order to save those who respond to his call. 
he clearly says that it's impossible to be saved by man through man. It's impossible. In other words, your dollar bill can't save you. Your stocks can't save you. Your good reputation can't save you. Your charity involvement and contributions can't save you. Your religious performance, it can't save you. The good deeds and works and righteous holy living that you're pursuing, it can't save you. Your obedience can't save you. Your talents, your skills can't save you. Your beauty can't save you. Your humor, your charm, your wit can't save you. Your own resources can't save you. Your politics can't save you. You running away from God in rebellion can't save you. Your running to God out of performance can't save you. You, you, your family can't save you. Your children's performance academically or athletically can't save you. Your grandma can't save you. Your health and diet can't save you. Nothing by man, nothing through man can be done or said or not done for us to be saved. Mankind cannot save. Friend, you cannot save yourself at all to any degree, period. It's impossible to be saved. But the gospel tells us that only through God, because of Jesus Christ, the otherwise impossibility becomes a possibility. What was impossible for us now becomes possible. What was unavailable to us is now available. What was once far off has now been brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. What we need and what we could never get, God has brought to us through the work of Jesus. Galatians chapter two and 16 says, and he says it three times in this one verse, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, justified. It means to be declared righteous. There will not be anyone in heaven who's not been fully justified, 100% justified, declared righteous by God. That's the requirement, is to be justified and made righteous. Know that a person is not justified, not made righteous, not made fit for heaven by the works of the law, by doing good things, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because, redundant here, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Again, in Titus chapter three, verse four, but when not the shame and the guilt and the finger pointing, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, there it is again, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that being justified by his grace, not our works, justified by his grace, we don't become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The man's question, what must I do to gain eternal life? You trust Jesus, period. Now let's think of, think of this entire passage in this way. Let's wrap it up like this. There's a couple questions that come from our text. Let's answer them. One, the man's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer, believe Jesus. You trust in Jesus Christ and his righteousness and you'll be justified and have eternal life. Question, the disciples ask, well, then who can be saved? 
Who will inherit and gain eternal life? Who will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven? The answer, anybody. So long as God does the saving. Otherwise, it's impossible. In fact, even today, you can be saved, asking God for mercy, much like a child asking for help. Believe Jesus and trust in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Don't trust in your religious ability. Don't trust in your wealth and your resources or your health. If you do, much like the wealthy religious fellow in our text, you'll still be anxiously wondering how you can be saved, even though you're financially independent and righteous and holy in your living. Right now, humble yourself and crawl like a child to the feet of Jesus, and you'll receive mercy and grace and pardon and forgiveness and life and purpose and meaning and an unshakable identity and treasures forever. That's what Proverbs 3 says in verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't trust yourself. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, you acknowledge him and he'll make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil, which by the way is doing God's thing in God's way. Fearing the Lord and turning away from evil. And here's a promise, it'll be healing for your flesh, refreshment to your bones. And you honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And then closing this conversation with Jesus, such a sweet reply from Peter, the voice of the disciples, the spokesman of the disciples, probably older than Jesus, definitely the oldest of the disciples. Peter began to say to him, see, we've, we've left everything and followed you. We, we've given up our lives to follow you. This man could not give up his wealth to follow Jesus. And Peter's hearing this about how to gain eternal life is to completely surrender in this way. And he's like, wait, our, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you, right? Is that the way that you see it? Are, are we going about this the right way, Jesus? Can you tell us? Because we want to do it the right way. We want to follow you. We, we've, we've given up stuff to follow you, Right? I mean, it's such a childlike spirit in Peter. It's so tender and sweet, so humble, very, very childlike. In the midst of this teaching, this grown man comes up to Jesus. Peter comes up to Jesus. We're, we're doing it right, right? And then Jesus promises that those who count the cost of discipleship, that they're prepared, those are those who prepared for the sacrifices involved in being a disciple and following Jesus, that they will receive greater blessings, both now in the fellowship and friendship of God's people, but also later in the world to come in the kingdom of God. He says it this way, truly I say to you that there's no one who has left house, who's abandoned and, and left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children's or lands for my sake and the gospels, who will not receive a hundredfold in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, which is the way of the cross. He says, don't be surprised. Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna be blessed, but there's still gonna be suffering. This, this verse right here speaks right into prosperity gospel. Like, yes, you can follow Jesus. Yes, he's gonna bless you. Yes, you're gonna have persecutions. And that doesn't always mean you're doing life wrong. It's just the way of the cross. We're following the suffering servant of Christ. And in the age to come, they'll receive eternal life. And then he repeats what he said in Mark 9, 35, but many who are first will be last and the last first. 
Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left these things for my sake and the gospel who will not be rewarded a hundredfold now and the life to come. Not one person who's left something for my sake will not receive back an abundance. What is it that you've left for the sake of the gospel? What is it that you've released or let go of in an effort to pursue God? Every Christian should have this. In other words, where have you denied yourself? Are you still holding on to your reputation or your wealth or your righteousness, your expectations about life, your independence, or just your way in general? Or have you come to Jesus, truly come to Jesus like a little baby, humbly trusting him with your whole life, learning to be more dependent upon him, honestly expecting him to care for you, to take care of you? Now let's go back to what we hit on last Sunday, the thought of that one thing. Think of it this way. I matter, I matter because I fill in the blank. I matter because I have what? Or maybe I I will matter more if I could get, what is that? I think I'll truly be happy. I can be settled and content if I just, and then fill in the blank. Is it a relationship? Is it growing influence? being an influencer. Maybe, maybe it's trying to go back in time and change people's perception of you to prove to them that you're no longer who they think you are. Is it finding a spouse? Is it having children? Is it getting noticed by the right people? I'll truly be happy if I get that home or that car, have that certain clothing, if I get that promotion, if I make the team, if I can just be noticed by a producer, if I could get a record label, if I could get that education, if I had more money, more comfort, I'd truly be happy. Essentially, when we think this way, when we believe this, we're asking our riches to save us. We're asking them to grant us meaning and value and worth and identity and purpose. We're putting something on these, we're putting savior weight on these things and it'll destroy it. It'll destroy everybody around it. And it'll hurt you. Think of it this way. What if removed from you would make you feel not as valuable? What do you have right now that if it were taken, you would feel insignificant? That's most likely your one thing that you're holding. Or at least it's attached closely to the one thing for you. I mean, this young man, he placed the core of his identity in his wealth and his possessions. Where is it that you practically do this? What do you point to to show others, but mainly yourself, that you matter? When you show and tell, like through stories or social media, what is it that you're after? This is often a way of identifying an idol of our heart. One thing you lack. Friends, give this to God. Surrender this to Jesus. Like Matthew 6, says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you but don't go after the other things. Seek first the kingdom of God and then all this other stuff will take care of itself. You follow Jesus like a baby follows a parent. You follow Jesus like he's your treasure. In Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven 
is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. Please listen. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and quickly covered up. And then not in his remorse or regret, but in his joy, he goes and sells all things. The man did not do this, did he? He left disheartened. This man sells all and has remarkable joy. He goes and sells all and buys that field because the treasure is worth more than everything that he had. Is Jesus worth more than everything you have? More than your reputation, more than your plans for your future? Is he worth everything for you to sell out and sell off everything? He goes and sells all things to have one thing. And in having that one thing, he gets it all. Give up the one thing that you still lack in order for God to be your all-encompassing treasure. To those who aren't Christians yet, I read Isaiah 55, six for you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. You call upon him while he is near and let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. What an opportunity that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do this and come and follow Jesus. The treasure that you're holding on to that's keeping you from following Jesus, it's not worth it. You're being tricked. Let go of your pride, your ego. Let go of your plans and your way and follow Jesus. And you'll have joy and treasure. And to those who are Christians this morning among us, I open the Lord's table for you today. Father, as we come to the table this morning to remember your son, Jesus Christ, may we all rest in his finished work. Help us to trust you, Father, like a baby does their parent. Help us to cling not to our wealth, not to our status, our pursuit of comfort, anything else. Help us cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Spirit of God, be on us, be with us as we pray and share in this time together today. Amen. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what we remember as we come to the table today. Friends, let's be humbled. Let's be grateful for the work of Jesus. He truly lived. He truly died. He truly beat death. He fulfilled the righteous requirement so that you would not have to shoulder that or worry with this. And this is what we come to the table remembering today. So Christian, remind yourself of this. You remember the night of the, the arrest of Christ, just prior to his arrest, he sat with his 12 disciples, including Judas, and he served them this meal. And he says, when you do this, remember me. Remember me. This is him. This is his righteousness. This is his work. This is realizing that he accomplished all things for us to have peace with God. You're gonna grab hold of some bread and you're gonna dip it into the juice or the wine based on your age or conscience. That bread is symbolic of the life that Christ lived in the flesh for you as your representative, a life of perfection to cancel out your life of sin. You're gonna dip it into the juice or the wine, that red liquid symbolic of the death of Christ where he suffered as your substitute on the cross, receiving God's wrath and punishment for your sin upon himself. 
so that you would never have to experience that. As Romans 8, 1 tells us, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he took all the condemnation upon himself on the cross. This is what we remember during communion is what Christ has done for us. Christian, remember his work for you. Let's pray. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will surely come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of remembering, this time of worship, this time of responding, this time of communion. And Lord, would you remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen. We're gonna have servers on either side of the stage. We've got self-serve stations in the back. Christian, you can come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.